0: Well, today is a very special day. How many are thankful that you live in the United States of America? Amen. I, I've always been patriotic. I grew up in Texas, and, and we were always in tune with the importance of our nation, strategically in God's plan. I believe without a doubt God had His hand on this nation and continues even though we've turned so far from Him. But I believe, church, I'm excited today because Brother Tim Barton is here with us from Wall Builders. And uh, if if you're not familiar with Wall Builders, it's a great organization. I consider it a ministry because they strive to keep the heritage, the, the true history of our nation in the forefront. That our nation had God's hand upon it. Amen? That He orchestrated it. That God has used our nation through all of, all of its history. And so I'm not going to take up too much more time, but I just want you to know our church believes that Jesus is the only hope for our nation. Amen? Amen? And I'm in agreement. I'm in agreement with uh, Brother Tim. Right before the service, we were in my office, and he looked at me and he said, I'm believing God for the third great awakening. Amen? Amen? And we believe that there's going to be a great revival in our nation once again. I want you to give Brother Tim, he can explain more than I can, but I want you to give him a great summit welcome today and let him know we love and appreciate him being here.
1: Check. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you today. As Pastor mentioned, our organization is called Wall Builders. And being from Texas, uh, when you have something that talks about like building walls, uh, people instantly assume we're part of the Trump team and we're southern border protectors. That's not really what we do. Uh, our name comes from the Bible book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah was part of the captivity in Babylon, and Nehemiah was the one that went and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. If you remember the story, he called everybody to join together, and, and we need to go back and rebuild this thing. And what seemed like an impossible task, people told him it couldn't be done. It was a grassroots movement. He said, everybody, let's get involved. Let's do it together. And in 52 days, they rebuilt this impossible task task of the wall in 52 days with that being said we do a lot with american history and my dad started our organization back in the 80s and the idea from from for him was almost like a call of nehemiah where he looked at our nation even in the 80s and said we have gone a long way from where we should be with the religious the moral the constitutional positioning of the nation and this is where, as we look on the 4th of July, as we get ready to, to celebrate things on the 4th of July, and are the slides working yet? Ah, there they come, maybe. I'm clicking the button, which is what we're supposed to do. Oh, okay. If not, I'm just going to start queuing, and we'll figure it out as we go. Um, as we look at the nation, we have at Wall Builders the largest private collection of original documents and artifacts from American history. We have more than 100,000 documents and artifacts from George Washington, and John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin, and Sam Adams, and John Hancock, etc. And what we do is we go back and we can show from their own writings what they believe to be important, what they said they did, and what's Really indisputable from their writings is the Christian foundation, the influence of the Bible in their life, their Christian faith. But as we do this, I also want to point out as we celebrate the 4th of July in America, there's a lot of people today that are not sure we should be celebrating America because kind of the modern narrative is that America is a really bad place. It's not that special. Let me, let me walk you through this real quick to give perspective because if you look At other nations of the world, this last year at the United Nations, there was 193 member nations that are part of the UN this last year. And that number actually changes based on who goes to war with who, who's conquered who, And at the 193 nations that were part of the UN, it's interesting, America was fairly unique for lots of reasons. But let me start with our constitution. We've only had one form of government in our nation's existence and only one constitution. If you look at the rest of the world, nobody else in the rest of the world has enjoyed the same level of stability that we have enjoyed as Americans. Now, as much as we've had issues and imperfect nation, sure, nobody has enjoyed the level of stability we've enjoyed. In fact, even some major nations in the world today, they, they have constant turnover. The average is that for most nations of the world, they go through a violent revolution every 30 to 40 years. That's not the norm in America. In fact, the average length of a constitution in world history is only 17 years. In America, actually... Tomorrow, it's 246 years that we've been a nation. And it's 235 in September 17th that we've been under one Constitution, one document. The reason, again, I point this out, America really is unique. We are different. America has enjoyed more stability, more prosperity, more freedom than anywhere else in the world in the 1830s. Alexis de Tocqueville came to America, and he's famous for the book Democracy in America. And in this book... He talked about when he was here in the 1830s, he said America was really different. Here's one of the things he said. The position of the Americans is quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one. Well, In the 1830s, he said what the Americans are experiencing, it's not like anywhere else in the world. I'll point out that is still true today, except... He said the position is quite exceptional. This is where the phrase originated of American exceptionalism. And, and this is something that actually modern professors debate against this, right? We've even had a recent president who said, well, America's not special and we're not exceptional. This is something that's been debated, but when we say exceptional, we don't mean necessarily that we are better than everybody else, right? This is not a, a braggadocious term of pride. This is recognizing our nation is different than everywhere else. And if you don't know how different we are, one of the things I highly encourage parents and grandparents is you need to help fund and send your kids on a mission trip to a third world nation. Right? You have no idea how special America is until you've been somewhere else. And then you go, oh, this isn't the same. Right. Right we take for granted so many of our blessings. We think it's just normal. Now, the whole world enjoys these things. The whole world does not enjoy those things. But this is where even if we ask some questions like, well, well, what made America different? What made America special? If you back up historically and look at the founding fathers, what they did largely coming up on the 4th of July. And as a side note, if you want to have an interesting conversation, when you're with people on the 4th of July, actually, we could do it today. And it, might be fun and funny, maybe embarrassing for some people. But if we just ask some basic questions about America and, and the 4th of July, it's pretty interesting how little most Americans know about American history. I don't know if some of y'all remember maybe when Jay Leno used to do jaywalking, right? Jesse Waters, now Will Witt. There's people that do man-on-the-street interviews, and it's, it's pretty staggering what people don't know. But looking back, if we ask, well, well, who did America declare independence from? A lot of people aren't really sure on this, so like, let's walk through it real quick. It was England, but really, so King George III was the individual in charge at that time. He was the king of England. We were English colonists. And when, when the founding fathers are separating, they're declaring their independence. They actually come out with the Declaration of Independence, which happened on July 4th. Part of what we celebrate tomorrow, oh, back up. I just jumped way ahead. And now my remote's not working to back up. Oh, yep, yep. Keep backing up. Keep backing up. It's not working. In the name of Jesus. Okay. We we, we might just have to start queuing. Um, Although invoking Jesus seemed to help. So we'll keep trying that. So, If you look at the Declaration of Independence, let me give you perspective, because a lot of people today, right, we don't really know what the Founding Fathers did or what they said, and even the way we look at the Declaration of Independence, I think, is probably not the most accurate way. The Declaration of Independence was the greatest breakup letter ever written, right? Because in this letter, we said, it's not us, it's all you. And then we listed 27 reasons why the king was the problem, right? Like, and this is, I mean, really, it was a great letter. But if you go back and you look at what all was listed in the declaration, this is where you do have Thomas Jefferson, who was 33 years old. He's the author, the primary author of the declaration. And I remember as a kid, right? Those of us who are adults, parents, grandparents, like we can remember as a kid, right? When you were a kid and you were like, 33 is so old, right? Right? And, and, and then you hit 33, and you're like, it's not very old, right? Like, this is, it's really not old. When Thomas Jefferson, right, growing up, like, he's 33, I'm like, man, he was so smart. Well, really, like, 33-year-olds, they must be so smart and wise. And then you're 33, and you're like, we're not that smart or wise as a 33-year-old. It makes it even more impressive than what Thomas Jefferson did when he wrote in the Declaration phrases that hopefully we know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. In those 55 words, Jefferson laid out the philosophy of American government. And American government started on this basic philosophy that we hold these truths to be self evident. We used to know truth existed. I will point out in modern culture, there's a lot of question marks about what is true, right? We're not not sure that male and female is true. We're not sure what bathrooms to use. Like culture is really confused about things that should not be that confusing, right? When we live in a world and culture that no longer believes truth exists, also recognizes the Christian... If truth is removed from the equation, if truth becomes subjective or collective, if there's no objective reality, no objective truth or objective moral standards, understand the reason that we have to defend truth is because if that is removed, the gospel becomes incredibly difficult to share with people because they'll say, oh, well, that's fine for you. But for me, no, no, there is no your truth, my truth. There is the truth and our opinions. Right. But truth does exist. The founding fathers said there's some basic truth that we all agree on. And here was the basic truth. They said we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That that we're endowed by our creator. We have certain God-given rights. And government exists to protect our God-given rights. And they didn't just say that those were rights we had. They said these truths were what? They said these truths were self-evident. That means obvious. Now... I would think, like, looking at it today, would we agree? Like, yeah, well, those are obvious. I will point out those are not obvious truths in most of the world. It's interesting to think about. The Founding Fathers said these truths are obvious. No, they're not. It's not obvious in most of the world we're created equal. If you go to the Middle East or Africa to major Muslim nations today, they don't believe in equality. India, to this day, has a caste system. Because they believe in reincarnation. They don't believe in equality. Equality is not a normal thought in the world. It's really not. The idea that we have God-given rights. Name all of the world leaders who believe your rights come from God and not government. Because they don't believe that in France or Germany. They don't believe that in England. Right? They don't believe that in Canada. They, they don't believe that over in the Middle East. They don't believe in Africa. This is not a normal thought. And the reason I point this out is because today we don't see these truths the same way. And I'll, I'll show why in a second. But here's what I'm going to point out today. What is crazy to me is that people argue the Declaration of Independence was a racist document. I'm going to walk you through this real quick. But they say, well, the Declaration was racist because when the founding father said that all men were created equal, they only meant white people. My dad and I testified in the state legislature in Louisiana. Louisiana was working to pass a piece of legislation that was going to have require all of their students in Louisiana schools to memorize those 55 words we just read. And it was struck down in committee. Didn't make it out of committee because in committee they had a debate about, well, we shouldn't have kids memorizing racist things because, right? They only believed in white people being equal, not black people. One of the things I will point out that is so important. Is that we don't take people's words for things, we look things up. Okay? This is what happened when the Apostle Paul was in, right, speaking to the Bereans in Acts 17. And the Apostle Paul, presumably, is trying to tell them about Jesus. And at this time, there's no New Testament. So, presumably, he's using, right, prophets from the Old Testament. So, the Apostle Paul's like, We know Isaiah said this. And they're like, Wait a second. Somebody get the scroll of Isaiah. And they bring it out and they're like, Oh, Isaiah did say that. Okay, you may continue. Right? And he's like, we know the prophet Joel said this. And am like, wait a second. Somebody go get the prophet Joel. And they, oh, okay. They would not believe what he said until they looked it up. What I want to point out is when we hear this stuff about the declaration being racist, I want to know, well, why do we think it's racist? Because they only believe in white people. Let me tell you, you actually can go back to the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, which we actually have the first printing of that original draft. It was done at the end of Jefferson's life. Really, really cool document. But what's worth noting is in this, this is this is actually where Jefferson is, is, is writing. The very first time, these thoughts and ideas. And what's unique about this, over on the side, you'll see little things written on the side margin. Well, those are by edits along the way. And those edits that are made on the side margin is the notes of the guy who made the edit. Because Thomas Jefferson was on a committee of five. On that committee was John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. So literally, these guys are making edits. And then right there it says... Mr. Adams, right? There says Dr. Franklin. This is like a Google work doc that they're making edits and like you can track who's making the edits. But what's worth noting is when Jefferson writes the original draft of the Declaration of Independence, on the third page where he's going through the list of grievances. because the first page is kind of their explanation philosophy, then it starts all the grievances right here, all the grievances coming down, But right there on that third page is the longest grievance in the entire Declaration of Independence. And in this longest grievance, it's actually a grievance against the slave trade, against slavery, and for the humanity of the slave. And it starts off at the top. It says, he has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty. Let me show you the text, and let me me explain this a little bit. Because here's what Jefferson said. It says, he, meaning the king. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating his most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the apprehend of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. In his document, the original draft, The word men is fully capitalized. Capital M, capital E, capital N. Now, now who were those men? Those were the Africans who were enslaved. And Jefferson said, right, like, we are against this, and the king is forcing this on us. And you're like, wait a second. The founding fathers were against it? Yeah, let me keep going. Because literally, the next line says, he is prosecuted as negative for suppressing every legislative attempt. Well, Well, legislative attempt means they were trying to pass laws, and the king kept stopping those laws. Yes. In fact, you can go back to 1773. Someone like Benjamin Franklin is a great example. Benjamin Franklin is someone that really is, it was a major leader in the anti-slavery movement in America, but, but is someone that most people know today. We don't know that much about him, but he's an easy example. In 1773, he was writing a letter to a pastor, the Reverend Dean Woodward. And in this letter to the pastor, he was explaining how things were going in Pennsylvania, but also things in the culture. Here's part of his letter. A disposition to abolish slavery prevails in North America. That many of Pennsylvanians have set their slaves at liberty. And that even the Virginia Assembly. Now I love that he says even Virginia. Right? Because like in Pennsylvania we're doing great. And like really like even Virginia. Even the Virginia Assembly have petitioned the king for permission to make a law. For preventing the importation of more into that colony. So even Virginia is trying to pass a law banning the slave trade. He continued he said, this request, however, will probably not be granted as their former laws of that kind have always been repealed. Their former laws of that kind? Yeah. They actually made several laws. And in fact, in 1773, there were four different colonies that had passed anti-slavery laws, were really against the slave trade, but some against slavery. But the laws against that And in 1774, the king vetoed them all. And this is where when the king vetoed those laws, it led many founding fathers to go, this is just one more reason we should separate from the king because he won't even let us in slavery in our own colonies. This is where many people got involved. In fact, if you go even further forward, when Benjamin Franklin is at the Constitutional Convention, he's, he's, he's one of the very famous founding fathers of that time. But you know, while he's there, he's the governor of Pennsylvania, but he's also the president of something else. What's he the president of? He's the president of the Abolition Society of Pennsylvania. He's actually the leader of the anti-slavery movement in Pennsylvania. This is their early charter. The reason I point this out is what is so dishonest about the way history is being told today is we're saying, oh, these people were so evil and and they were so racist and America's so bad and they're pro-slavery. Literally one of the reasons we wanted to separate from Great Britain was to end slavery, to end the slave trade. And that's not part of the conversation, but it is in the actual documents. Now, the reason it's not in the final draft, when, when, when they actually were debating over what should be in the final draft of the Declaration, John Hancock said they would only include what was unanimously agreed to by all the colonies. Because if there was anything in the declaration that that colonies didn't agree to, he says the king would be able to come in and to pull us apart by our own separate local interests. Therefore, we will only include what is unanimous in the document. Thomas Jefferson said when, when they were going through this document and they got to the slave trade grievance, he said there were two colonies that opposed that grievance. Jefferson said it was the colonies of South Carolina and Georgia because they said up to that point, They hadn't tried to ban the slave trade. They hadn't tried to end slavery. So they didn't have that offense against the king. So they wanted to only include in the declaration what was an offense everybody had against the king. So it was removed. Also worth noting, 11 of the 13 colonies voted in favor of it. The vast majority of the American colonies and the vast majority of the founding fathers came out against slavery. Today, we just don't know that part of the conversation. But this is where also, let me me again, let's back up, right? When when they said we owe these truths to be self-evident, they actually did believe in created equality. They did believe in God-given rights. They did believe that government existed to protect those rights. That was unanimous among all the colonies. And here's where I would ask again, if, if, if this is not self-evident to all the world, it is self-evident to us. Well, well, then who is this really self-evident to? Who are these truths self-evident to? These truths are only self-evident to people who are actually familiar with the Bible. Because if you know the Bible, right, like this is pretty basic. In Genesis, it says, God made them in his image, male and female. He created them in his image. He created them, right? Where, where do we get this idea of equality? Well, it's Genesis 1, and 27 that we learn this notion that we were all created in God's image. And it's worth noting, the Bible does not tell us what shape, size, or color Adam and Eve were. Well, that's interesting, why wouldn't the Bible tell us that? Because that doesn't matter, right? Value does not, is not determined. It does not come in your shape, size, and color or your ethnicity or your nationality or anything else we try to put people in groups of today. Do you know, biblically speaking, Jesus, God only ever put people in two groups. Okay, well, gender, I was gonna go a different direction. Okay, sure, Jesus didn't make male and female we can clarify that. However, Matthew 25, it was the sheep and the goats, right? I mean, you read the Bible, right? In Christ, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no slave, free, Scythian, right? Like, none of this. We are all one in Christ. Well, one in Christ. So that means there's those in Christ and those outside of Christ. The only difference in scripture are those who know God and those who don't know God. Like, that's it, That is the only thing that when God looks, right, did you know Jesus? Did you know my son? Yes? No? That's it. That's the determining factor. It's not gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, right? That's not in God's kingdom, but this is also something that's self-evident in the Bible or this notion that if you look in Genesis, where do we get the idea that that there's God-given rights This is something clear in Scripture that God gave Adam and Eve choice, and God gave them opportunity, and the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech. This is something clearly outlined in Scripture. And if you go even further, where do we get the idea that government exists to protect our God-given rights? Well, largely you can find those ideas. First of all, in Genesis 9, where this is the very first time in Scripture that God gives a a law, an ordinance, to civil government. And this was part of the Noahide laws, part of the Noahic covenant, where when Noah lands the ark, Mount Ararat, he gets off. The first civil ordinance God gives is that if man sheds blood, by man his blood will be shed. Where where God is saying, you know what, we're not going to let murderers get away anymore. We're going to hold them accountable because we're protecting the God-given right to life. And so government exists to protect your God-given rights. So we're going to stop murderers so they can't take your God-given rights away. This is where, as you start unfolding this, right? The founding fathers were so largely influenced and shaped by the Bible. And today, people don't see that, which I get. But I will point out, this used to be largely historically documented and known. So much so that you can go back to someone like Clinton Rossiter, who this... We're talking in the 1900s. This was still very common information in the earlier 1900s, mid-1900s. Clinton Rossiter was a professor at Cornell University. He wrote a book called The Seed Time of the Republic. And in this book, he went through and outlined the six most influential guys when it came to the ideas that led to the Declaration He said, these are the six people who were promoting the ideas that led to America being a free nation. Here were the six people he said were the most influential. Benjamin Franklin, Richard Bland, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, the Reverend Roger Williams, the Reverend John Wise, and the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. He said those six people were promoting the ideas that led to independence, that led to freedom. Notice four of those individuals are actually pastors. And to give you an easy example, to see the connection, the influence that that the Bible, that Christianity, that pastors had in America. Let me take, for example, John Wise. John Wise was a pastor from Ipswich, Massachusetts. He pastored in the late 1600s through the early 1700s. In 1717, he had a volume of his sermons that came out. This is the last volume of sermons. But in this volume of sermons, it's interesting. He preached a sermon where in his sermon, he explained that taxation without representation is tyranny. In, in the sermon, he also went on to explain that God's preferred form of government was the consent of the governed. And in the sermon, he explained that God has made every man equal to every other man. And God has given them their rights. They did not come from government. They came from God. All of those ideas appeared in the Declaration of Independence. Now, how in the world are we going to link this pastor from 1717? That's when these sermons came out. How are you going to link that pastor to the Declaration of Independence? Because in 1772... Those sermons were reprinted and they were reprinted by the Sons of Liberty because this pastor is from Massachusetts, Sons of Liberty, Massachusetts. And and, and they're starting to have this conversation of how can we get Americans on board to understand what liberty and freedom is about? How, How can we be unified? And one of them said, you know, guys, I've got this book of sermons and there's a sermon in there that is such a great thought and example. The Sons of Liberty literally reprinted those sermons and they distributed them through not just Massachusetts, but through all of the colonies. And as they went through the colonies, every single founding father, when you get to 1776 in the Declaration, every single founding father has seen and read these sermons of John Wise. So when you see it in the Declaration, Literally, they saw those in this sermon from John Wise. They were influenced by a pastor who was teaching them biblical principles that led to the Declaration. And this is where earlier historians used to identify this. People like B.F. Morris in 1864 said some of the most glittering sentences in the Immortal Declaration of Independence are almost literal quotations from this essay of John Wise. It was used as a political textbook in the Great Struggle for Freedom. Historians documented this. Even presidents used to know this. Calvin Coolidge, on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, he went to Independence Hall and he gave a speech. And the whole speech is really good. It's worth going back and reading it if you enjoy reading stuff. But the whole speech is great. However, in this speech, it, let me back up. I don't know how to jump past that again. It just jumped like six slides forward. I don't know what's happening. It's supposed to be... I'm pushing this button a whole bunch... Can you back it up for me? Because it's not responding to the remote right now. There you go. President Calvin Coolidge. And the next slide is a quote from his speech where he, he, and again, I encourage you to read the whole speech, but he said, the thoughts in the Declaration can very largely be traced back to what John Wise was writing. Here was the doctrine of equality, of popular sovereignty and animal rights asserted by Wise. It used to be incredibly well known, and it's very well documented, that John Wise, this, this pastor was influential in the shaping of the nation with... His own sermon being part of the impetus for the Declaration of Independence, and as you look at this today, right? People are like, "This is crazy." Sam Adams, though, let me to, to further illustrate this. Sam Adams was known as the father of the American Revolution. He was one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty and when the Sons of Liberty decided that they wanted to do a, a committee of correspondence because they're gonna they want to send circular letters out so everybody can be on the same page because this is before there's like a group text right that there, there's, there's not this group me app and, and there's not things you can be on the same text thread together and they said we need to have then a way that we can send the same document to all the colonies so everybody's reading the same thing so what they do is they come up with the committees of correspondence and Sam Adams wrote these the very first Committee of Correspondence. If this afternoon you go back and you look up the very first Committee of Correspondence, what you will see is there are three sections to it. And, and it, again, the whole thing is worth a read. It's pretty interesting to see where they're coming from. But there's three seconds. The second section was called the Rights of the Colonists as Christians. And Sam Adams said, guys, you just need to know as Christians, there, there, there's some things we should be thinking about. This is the opening sentence from that section from the Committee of correspondence, He said, These may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and head of the Christian church, which will be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Now, they're trying to rally Americans together. He says, If you want to know where we're coming from, the two things you need to do are read your Bible and study the life of Jesus. Because then you will understand what we should be thinking about with this current issue and situation. Now, that's always the right answer, right? It doesn't matter what your issue and situation, you should always read the Bible, study the life of Jesus, great application. But this is where, again, today, this notion that the Founding Fathers were influenced by the Bible, that they were influenced by Christianity, that's not a common thought today. And yet, if you back up historically, it's very easy to show from their own writings and documents the influence of Christianity. And to give you an example that you can follow along with, I think, fairly well, if we take someone like John Adams. John Adams was a very well-known name, well-known founding father. John Adams not only was a signer of the Declaration, not only was he the first vice president, he was the second president of America. But here's one of the things that John Adams explained about the Bible and Christianity. He said, I've examined all religions, and the result is that the Bible is the best book in the world. We live in an era where most Christians do not know what they believe or why they believe it, much less do we know what everybody else believes. One of the reasons that you should have confidence in Christianity is it literally is the only worldview that can practically answer all of life's questions, right? This this is the only thing that actually makes sense. And John Adams says, I've studied all of them and nothing compares to the Bible. Well, he didn't stop there. He went on further. He said, suppose a nation in some distant region, should take the Bible as their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts they're exhibited. Now, what he's saying is imagine if there was a place and the only laws they had were from the Bible and they just followed the Bible. Now, if you imagine that, right, what would that look like? Here's what he concluded. He said, what a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? Right, if we could just get people following the Bible. Well, what I can tell you right, is if we could get people following the Ten Commandments, right, following the golden rule, the Sermon on the Mount, it would sure change places like Chicago, right, like Los Angeles, New York City, some of these major cities where there's crazy things happening, This was his idea. If we could just follow the Bible, and he's not the only guy that held this position, but I'll point to his son, who was the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, and John Quincy Adams said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. Right? It's not really impressive to know the Bible, but it's embarrassing not to know the Bible. That's what he said about his generation. In our generation, it's very different. Right? Because now it's not really embarrassing not to know the Bible. You fit in with everybody else. But we get impressed. Like, why, man, why do we love Pastor one of the many reasons? Because he knows the Bible so well. Understand the era, where they are, right? If, if we're in a room of largely educated people, if we asked a basic question like, what is 2 plus 2? It would not be impressive for any educated person to know that 2 plus 2 is 4. But it would be embarrassing For you not to know two plus two is four. Why? Because it's embarrassing for you not to know what should be obvious. That's his point, right? It would be embarrassing to not know what should be obvious. Why? Because the Bible was so influential in their time. It was the number one textbook used in public schools as kids are growing up learning to read. They learned to read from the Bible and families would read the Bible cover to cover at least once a year. The Bible was so much a part of life. That it would be embarrassing not to know the Bible. And with this being said, right, John Quincy Adams is certainly learning this from the influence of his parents along the way. And if you look at his parents, they are a really interesting couple to study. Um, they were kind of like the ideal couple from early America. And if you read their letters back and forth, the, the letters of John Adams to his wife, in many cases, it's, it's like a Hallmark movie. And I'm not a Hallmark movie guy, Right. But you're reading him and he's like, you are the air that I breathe in the morning and you're my sunset in the evening. And he goes on and on. And you're like, bro. Right? I know it's private correspondence. I get it. That's cool. But, you know, as people have to study history, Hallmark's not my favorite thing to study. So this is a little much. Nonetheless, they have this great relationship And John Adams, during the American Revolution, he's actually gone over in Europe for much of the revolution because he's trying to get America allies. He's trying to negotiate the end of the war with England. And so while he's gone in this day, Abigail is really like a single parent in this moment. She's taking care of the family. She's taking care of the farm. Also super cool. She starts basically a female spy ring where she gets some of the, the other wives of some of the patriots and they start going to some of these, these loyalist balls. And so these women whose husbands are with the king and they're these British officers. And so Abigail shows up and she's like, oh guys, I'm so embarrassed with my husband. I can't believe he's doing this. And she's playing the game, right? She's like, so what does your husband do? Oh, and where's he going? And when are they going? And how many men are they taking? Okay, she's gathering the she goes back, she writes her husband, John, says, hey, I just got this. And I'm like, literally, just lays out the plan of the British. John gets it to George Washington, the commander of the American military. He's like, really cool. But she is literally leading these women and aspiring as it goes. So awesome on lots of level. What's also really fun about this is as John Adams is gone, she's the one raising the family. In fact, if you go to Massachusetts, where they're from, their home church is still there. Outside their home church, decades ago, they erected a statue. And that is Abigail, In front of the church with John Quincy Adams because they were known to have been so faithful attending church they never missed a Sunday so this is how John Quincy Adams is growing up with a mom and dad who are open about faith who always go to church and so as John Quincy Adams is growing up a few things that are worth note first of all when he was eight years old the Massachusetts Minutemen used to practice their musket drills in front of the John Adams home when John Quincy Adams was eight his father got him a musket gave it to him and said you need to go outside and start training because you need to learn how this works as an eight-year-old now as a country boy myself when I was eight I did have a single shot bolt-action 22 rifle right had my dad shown up one day and be like hey so uh, and, and just a little bit we, we got some Navy SEALs right some Green Berets Force Recon Marines we got some guys coming over you're gonna take your 22 you're gonna go train with these military guys that is the greatest day in the world Right, as an eight year old boy, are you kidding me? Like, dad deserves Father of the Year for like perpetuity. This is amazing. Well, this is what John Quincy Adams is an eight year old. He's growing up in the midst of everything going on. When he was 11, he got to go with his dad on on one of his dad's diplomatic missions over to Paris. And what's really fun is is there's a letter from his mom, Abigail, that gives context. And, And from this letter, here's what we deduce is that John Quincy Adams was supposed to have written his mom when he got over to Paris to let his mom know, hey, I'm alive, dad's feeding me, right? Like, we're good. And the letter from Abigail indicates that either John Quincy Adams did not write the letter. He forgot or got lost somewhere in the mail on the way because there's a letter from her to him. And it starts off with this idea like, I'm not even sure if you're still alive, but if you are, you're in trouble. Right? Like, you were supposed to tell me when you got there, and you didn't tell me. I don't even know if you're alive anymore. But she goes on in this letter, and again, it's a funny letter in that sense, but a lot of interesting things she says. In this letter, she goes on and explains that while you're over in Paris, they have a different idea about life than we do, right? That this is the building up to some of the French Revolution kind of ideas. In the French Revolution, they have liberty, equality, fraternity are their three values, and that's their motto. But they don't believe in, in, in faith because they've been under the Catholic Church and it's been so oppressive. So they want nothing to do with Christianity anymore. And as they're trying to throw off this really oppressive state government, removing Christianity, she's worried that her 11-year-old son might adopt some bad ideas. So she's explaining, make sure you don't abandon the things you were taught along the way. Here's part of what she told them. She said, adhere to those, when it comes, at some point, yes, adhere to those religious sentiments and principles which were early instilled into your mind, and remember, you Are accountable to your Maker for all your words and actions. Now, that is true. I can tell you that the the terminology of that has changed a little bit. But when I was growing up, I definitely like had a grandparent. I think my mom said this some too, right? Like, yes, you can go play with your friends, but hey, God's watching, right? Like, you you just knew you were still accountable. Like, you don't get away from God. God's always watching what you do. This is literally what she's telling him, right? Like, hey, remember, you're accountable for everything you do. No matter if your dad and I see it, you're always accountable. But then she goes even further, which is awesome. She says, dear as you are to me, I had much rather you should find your grave in the ocean or an untimely death crop you in your infant years rather than see you in a moral, wicked, or graceless child. I hope you drown in the ocean, love, mom. <laughs> like, this is crazy, except... What is she doing? Well, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 22:6 that you train up a child in the way that you go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. What is she doing? She's instilling an eternal perspective. Right? It is better for you to die young, connected in faith than for you to live a long life rejecting God, doing your own thing, like, nope, it's better for you to drown in the ocean. This is incredible perspective. Well, this is the way he grows up. When, when, when the revolution, oh, by the way, uh, as he's growing up, when he was 11, he did receive an official congressional appointment to be the official secretary to America's diplomat over to Paris. Well, the diplomat over to Paris was his father. So like, basically, he's getting a congressional permission slip to go with his dad to Paris. It's like what it seems like. However, he was supposed to be the official secretary. And we can look back and maybe be skeptical that, well, how good of a secretary can an 11-year-old be? Right? I've seen the handwriting. It's not great. So we could be skeptical, except when he's 14, this time he received a second congressional appointment, and this one was not to go with his father. He was actually part of the diplomatic team The reason was, as a 14-year-old, he was going to be the official interpreter over in Russia. Why is a 14-year-old your interpreter? Because at 14, he was already fluent in six languages. So, so this was a very well-educated young man. Well, as his life continues, when, when the revolution is finally over and then we have the Constitution, George Washington became president. And under George Washington, he was chosen to be a diplomat. In fact, George Washington said he's the best diplomat America has ever had. And then under his father, he again was selected as a diplomat. And then if you, you know history, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams didn't get along real well in that presidential election cycle. And so he's not requested to stay on under the Jefferson administration, but he runs for Senate. He becomes a U.S. Senator under Thomas Jefferson. Then under Madison, he is chosen again as a diplomat. He's actually the diplomat who negotiated the end of the war of 1812, which is also super cool. He then is the secretary of state under James Monroe. He then was the sixth president of the United States of America. This guy has one of the most impressive resumes of anybody in American history, and it doesn't stop there. Because after his term as president, when he loses his reelection bid, he decides he doesn't want to stop trying to do good things in America. So he goes and he ran for Congress. He is the only president to ever be elected as a congressman after being president. Because most presidents would view that as a step down. Well, it kind of is a step down. Except, why did he run for Congress? He said there was a great evil in America that needed to be remedied. It was the evil of slavery. He became the leader of the anti-slavery movement in America. In fact, they gave him the nickname, the Hellhound of Abolition, because this was the issue he he would not let go of. Well, he wrote that when he got there, there were only about 20% of Congress that were really anti-slavery. Because there were some that were you know just ambivalent well like i'm not really like advocating for it but like whatever and then some that no we got to keep it he said only 20 percent were really against it so he knew he had an uphill battle well as the leader of the anti-slavery movement part of the first amendment says you can petition congress for a redress of your grievance and so as the leader of the movement people would send their petitions anti-slavery petitions to congress they were given to john quincy adams so he would take them to the floor of congress he would do all these petitions And because most of Congress was not anti-slavery at that time, they got tired of hearing this guy read petition after petition. So they went to the Rules Committee and they made a new rule. The rule became known as the John Quincy Adams gag order. The rule was you cannot bring a petition that is related to another petition we've already said no to. So right, if we've already said no to ending slavery, you can't bring hundreds more. And there were days he would bring between seven and 900 petitions. So they pass this new rule and rules committee. He ignores it. So he starts talking about slavery again. So they reprimand him. They censor him. They even expel him. But if you get kicked out of the house, then your district has to choose somebody to represent them. And the district was like, this is still our guy. So he didn't actually ever leave Congress. Nonetheless, People are fighting against him. As they're fighting against him, he's, he's actually in Congress for 17 years fighting in slavery the whole time. But one day a reporter came to him They said, Mr. Adams, you've been fighting in slavery a long time and there have been no visible signs of success for you. How do you stay motivated when you haven't really been successful? Now that's maybe a hurtful, hard question, but his answer was brilliant. He said his answer actually was based on his life motto. His life motto, he wrote, was that duty is ours, results are God's. His answer to the reporter was, it's only up to me to do the right thing. It's up to God what happens after that. Right? That's a great perspective. He kept doing the right thing. Well, as he continues to do the right thing, he was there 17 years. And as a congressman, you serve two-year terms. At the end of two years, you have to run for re-election. And in Congress, there's a lot of turnover. There's people that retire, there's people that don't don't get reelected. But his last term in Congress, there was a freshman who was elected. And this freshman heard John Quincy Adams giving these anti-slavery speeches and and was really impacted. He joins the anti-slavery movement, becomes a leader under John Quincy Adams in the anti-slavery movement. Well, John Quincy Adams ends up having a stroke. He died in the Capitol building. And after John Quincy Adams dies, this young freshman actually was chosen as one of the congressmen who's going to oversee all the funeral arrangements. And John Quincy Adams was a big deal because not only did he grow up with the founding fathers, knew every one of them, right? the son of John Adams, but a diplomat knew every world leader, largely speaking. He was a president. This was a really famous guy. So this was a big deal. Well, this freshman congressman was on this very small group of congressmen who were assigned this committee to, to, to handle all the process and procedures. So... After the two-year term, this freshman decides, I'm going to run for re-election. And he ran for re-election, but he got defeated. Not to be discouraged, he ran a second time and lost. He then ran for U.S. Senate and lost. He then ran for state office and lost. And this young freshman did not win another election until Abraham Lincoln became the president of the United States. Abraham Lincoln, right, is known as the guy largely responsible for for ending slavery, right? We know the Emancipation Proclamation. We know in the midst of this, right, when the 13th Amendment is done. Like, yes, he's the guy largely credited with this. I would point out, Abraham Lincoln was actually mentored by John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams fought his entire life for something that he never saw realized. And he had no idea that God was actually using him to train and raise up the generation that was going to get it done. We could talk about for nearly 50 years, people have been praying for an end of Roe versus Wade, right? Been praying a long time for that. And there are people who actually have passed away, gone to be with Jesus before it happened. But the reality is you never know who you are in the story. Are you the Abraham Lincoln or the John Quincy Adams, right? Is God gonna use you to raise up the next generation or are you the people that are actually gonna bring that fulfillment about? But the reality is this goes back to where God has called us to be faithful in what we do. And we are faithful no matter who we are in the story We're faithful to what God's called us to do. And as I say this, this is part of it. When you look at the American story, there's amazing parts of the American story. And yet today, it is so crazy to me that people are like, no, 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 America, we're so bad. And and all the founding fathers were evil. This is the narrative that's repeated over and over and over. So first of all, let me just say the response. I'm going to start with the the, the biblical response first. I'm going to give you the historical response. The biblical response, if we look at the Bible, one of our heroes from the Bible is King David. Now, King David is a legit hero from the Bible. It it should not be confused, right? We know he killed lions. We know that he actually killed bears. And we know he actually did that as a child because before he even goes to kill Goliath, when Saul's like, I'm not really sure that you can handle killing a giant, he says, no, it's cool. I've already killed lions and bears. Scholars believe that David was between 14 to 17 years old when he killed Goliath, right? Which means he was killing lions and bears, 10, 11, 12 We, some of us grown up outdoors people, some of us were hunters as kids, sure. I will point out, it's one thing when you've got like a 300 wind mag, it's something totally different when you got a stick and a rock, okay? This kid was genuinely really good as a warrior. He also was really good as a worshiper. He wrote the majority of the book of Psalms, right? The Bible even says that David was a man after God's own heart, the only person that says that about in Scripture, this guy was really impressive. There are some really good parts of David's story. But if you follow David's story, we also hear about David's kids and really David's failures as a father. Because you learn about Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah. Amnon was the one who had a crush on his sister and raped his sister. Right, And David does nothing, and Absalom finds out, and he's like, I'm not letting that stand. So Absalom kills Amnon. And Absalom is starting to think, man, my father's not a very good leader. So Absalom sets himself up as a judge at the city gates, and he starts raising up in his own eyes. He then decides, I'm just going to take the throne from my father. There's a violent war between Absalom and David. Right, it, it ends. Absalom's hair gets caught in a tree. David's men use him as javelin practice. That's the end of Absalom. But then it goes to Adonijah. Adonijah is introduced in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6. And it says, Adonijah, comma, the son whom David never corrected. I can just tell you, right? I'm a parent. I have a three-year-old. The question is not, have you ever corrected? Right? It's like, how many times a day or in the hour or in the minute? Like, parents, we know, right? We're like, hey, don't touch. Put that down. Hey, don't, come over here. Dad. Like, literally, that's all we do all day because our job is to teach, to train, to instruct, to correct. That, that is your job as a parent. What we know is that David was a really, really bad parent. In fact, I would argue he's one of the worst, if not the worst parent in scripture when it comes to the failures as parent. And if he's not the worst, he's at least the runner-up. Like, this guy was a terrible parent. Well, this is part of the really bad story of David. And then it actually gets worse for David because at a time when kings go to war, right, David stayed from his balcony and looked saw this woman of unusual beauty who was bathing. He has the affair with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. So what happens? He has Uriah assassinated. Literally as this dude bumped off. David was an adulterer, murderer. Well, this is a really ugly part of David's life. But here's one of the things I appreciate about scripture. See, the Bible tells us the whole story unapologetically. It tells us the whole story of King David. It tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly. Why does this matter? Because if the only thing you knew about King David was the fact that he killed Goliath, you're like, this guy's amazing. Well, there's a little more to the story than that right but if the only thing you knew was that he was an adulterer and a murderer well there's a little more to the story than that the story of david is a story of a very imperfect person that was used mightily by a powerful god right and yet today the problem in modern culture modern culture says wait a second we can't celebrate people who have done bad things some of the very songs we sung this morning have lyrics directly from the psalms that david wrote how are we singing the songs from a murderer, an adulterer, such a, a failure as a father. How do we sing his songs? Well, part of it is we understand something different. See, as Christians, we should always view the world through the lens of Scripture. So our worldview should always be shaped by the Bible. And the Bible is very clear on, on this kind of thought. Romans 3.23 tells us that all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Everybody is jacked up and needs Jesus. Amen. Right? So, if we look back historically, we understand there has never been a single perfect person ever, with the exception of Jesus, a little different, right? There's never been a perfect person. So, if we're looking back, like, can you believe this person did that? Yeah. Like, why can you? Not, like, why would that surprise you? It's not surprising that humans have flesh and do fleshly sinful things at times. Like, that, that's never surprising. However, what is different about this? See, today we're saying, yeah, but, but we, we shouldn't honor. We shouldn't celebrate people if they've ever done anything bad ever. The reason we honored and celebrated them was not because they were perfect. We always knew they weren't perfect. We honored and celebrated them because of what God used them to do in an incredible way. See, here's the reality is we don't celebrate perfect people. We celebrate how a perfect God used imperfect people and did great things through them. But if we're going to say every time we find someone with a mistake, we cancel them, there will never be a person ever that we can celebrate or look up to or want to emulate on any level whatsoever because everybody's imperfect. Why? Because everybody's a sinner who needs a Savior. And I'll go even further because if you look in in, in something like Hebrews chapter 11, what is known as our faith hall of fame, we're told look to that as heroes, examples to you of the faith. If you look at heroes of the faith, If you start, like it goes in chronological order, right? But if you start looking and thinking about the people on this list, when you look at people, for example, like Noah or Abraham or Moses or Rahab or Samson or David, just in case you don't know all the story, right? After Noah, Noah, incredible faith, right? Does the ark after Noah, ark, Mount Ararat, he gets off. The Bible says he planted a vineyard. And then what happened? Oh, he didn't just get drunk. It says he got drunk and passed out naked, I'm gonna suggest that's not good behavior for a church body, right? Like, that's a problem, right? I feel like elder team, deacon, somebody does that, probably they're not the elder and deacon after that, right? Like, probably not the best, that's what Noah did. Abraham, wait, we know he had incredible faith because God told him pack up and go and Abraham packs up and goes. He also was a coward and a liar. Because every time he got somewhere and somebody's like, dude, who's that good looking girl? He's like, oh, that's my sister. Would you like her? That was his wife. What are you talking about? This dude, like, I can just tell you, as a Christian, I'm not promoting fighting. I'm not advocating for that, but there's a few things I'll fight over. And fighting over my wife and kids is definitely on the list. For you to offer your wife to people, oh, you are a coward on a different level. Like, what do you, this is ridiculous. Yes, Abraham was a coward and a liar. Moses, we know, was a murderer. Rahab, Probably don't need a lot of explanation there, right? But prostitute, Samson was a womanizer. David, murderer, adulterer, terrible father. These are our heroes. Like, did God not have anybody better he could have chosen? Here's what I will point out. God did not choose them by accident. I would argue that every time you read Hebrews 11, what it should do is give you hope. That if God can use them, oh, I can sure be used by God, Right? This is the reality, is that God does not use perfect people. A perfect God uses imperfect people and does great things through them. And we live in an era that wants to cancel everybody who's not perfect. That that is just stupid on every level. Let me give you one more example as we finish this thought out. And I want to encourage you, again, with some of the Christian foundation of our nation. Last example is Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was not only, right, this famous president. If you back up, we know he was the commander of the Allied Forces. Back up even further. When Dwight Eisenhower was a young man, actually when he was 13 years old. He was born in Texas, then he moved to Kansas. His family had a farm in Kansas. This is a picture of their family on the farm. And this is from 1902. The story I'm telling you happened in 1903. Dwight was running on the farm. He fell down scraped his knee. Doesn't seem like a big deal, right? We'd say, hey kid, get up, scrape it off, you're fine. Well, that's what we do today. But back then, if you got a scrape, there wasn't the antiseptics and antibiotics and things we have today. So if you got a scrape, if it got infected, it actually could be lethal. His scrape got infected. He didn't want to tell his parents. So came around, Sunday came, and, and their family was very devoted Christians. Sunday came, and they're getting ready for church, and Dwight, 13-year-old, starts telling mom, oh, I don't feel good. I don't, I don't think I should go to church today. And mom, like apparently he's not a faker, right? Because mom's like, okay, like I can see something's bothering you. You stay home. And they said, when we get back tonight, we will check on you. I don't know how long you feel like church should go. I'm just telling you when you leave in the morning, don't get back till night. That's a long service. Right? Like, that, that's a long time to be gone. They got back that night, and they went to check on Dwight. He was upstairs. Uh, they had a second story. They went up to his room on the second floor. And when they went to check on him, Mom is there first, Ida. She sees him, and she starts screaming. So the dad runs upstairs. Dwight was running a fever in and out of consciousness. So they know something is wrong. So Dad gets on the horse. Buggy rides to town as hard as he can. Doc Conklin comes back from town. And when Doc Conklin gets back, they go to check Dwight. And he starts feeling and he felt his leg, and his leg was so swollen. Actually, when they decided we need to take his pants off so we can see his leg, his leg was so swollen they couldn't get his pants off. They had to cut his pants and his boot off his foot because his leg was that swollen. When they got it off, his leg from his knee going up his thigh was purple and black from the infection. And Doc Conklin says, this is a problem, right? That infection, he says, from where the scrape was going up the thigh, that's going toward his body. And if it gets into his body, it could kill him. So... I think the best course of action will be we need to amputate the leg. And so mom and dad, right, well, whatever you need to do, we want to save his life. Doc Conklin says, okay, well, I need to go back to town so I can get my saw. And then I'll come back and we'll amputate the leg. So Doc Conklin leaves to go get his saw. Dwight apparently was conscious for the let me get my saw part because he starts screaming And he screams actually for his brother, Edgar. He says, Edgar, get in here. Edgar, get in this room. And so Edgar goes in and he starts talking with his older brother. He says, Edgar, I'd rather die than lose my leg. You you have to make sure. Don't let the doctor take my leg. When the doctor comes back, don't let him take my leg. So the doctor comes back. He goes upstairs and he gets ready to go in the room. And Edgar stands in front of the door. And the doctor says, Edgar, right, get out of the way. I got to get in the room. He says, sorry, doc. I gave my word. You can't go in. And the doctor says, Edgar, your, your brother's actually dying inside. Right? I, I, I can save him. you got to let me in. Sorry, doc. I gave my word. You can't go in. Edgar literally would not let the doctor in the room. They had this exchange. And finally, the doctor gets so frustrated that the report says the doctor turned to leave. He goes down the stairs. And at, before he slams the door, he turns back and says, the only thing that will save this boy's life now is a miracle. And he slams the door and leaves. Now, first of all, before we get to the miracle, which is coming, before we get there, I I always, been like, when I read this story, I just want to know, like, what were mom and dad doing? Right? Like, at no point they were like, Edgar, move. Like, it's just weird to me. Nonetheless, this is how the story went. So, when the doctor slams the door, says the only thing that will save him is now is a miracle, mom and dad say, well, we need to pray. So, that night, mom, dad, and Edgar prayed over Dwight. And every morning and every night, for the next two weeks, they prayed over Dwight. At the end of the first week, they're realizing all oh, the discoloration, it's, it's starting to go down. The swelling's going down, it's getting better. At the end of the second week, all the swelling is totally gone, Discoloration is totally gone, legs back to normal, Dwight's up running around, he's ready to go back and play football again. The doctor comes back and says, I don't know what happened. Like, clearly this is a miracle. It absolutely was a miracle. And what I will point out is Dwight became right, famous for being the commander of the Allied forces in World War II. Had Dwight lost his leg, he cannot even join the military, much less could he be the vessel that God used in that capacity. See, God did a miracle to even get him to that place. But let's go even further. Because after the war, he does actually, then uh, he's going to go into politics. So he runs and he becomes a president. And when he runs as president, what's worth noting is before he goes in office, it's in his journal. And in his journal, he says he was looking at America and he was afraid that America was becoming too secular. And, and, and the reason that was scary for him is he says that, right, when a nation rejects God, it, it sets them up that they can then embrace communistic ideas because that's what he was fighting against, right? It's what he saw around the world. He says, we, we can't forget God in America. So he wanted to do something to help people remember God. And you actually can get online. You can go back to his first inauguration. You can find it on YouTube. At the first inauguration, he decided he wanted to help people remember God. He actually led his own prayer at his inauguration, It's a minute and a half prayer. Again, you can get on YouTube, you can listen to it. What's cool is, I mentioned, we have a lot of original documents from American history. We actually have his handwritten notes that were the prayer that he prayed that day. This is very well known. But not only that, remember, he wants people to remember God. There's a lot of things he did to help people remember God. He's the one who actually started the National Prayer Breakfast so that all of our congressmen, all of our leaders, and other leaders from around the world come together once every year to pray and remember God. He also, when he was in D.C., he attended church. Uh, The church he attended was a church, uh, the Reverend George Dockerty, but while he was attending church there, and that the the Reverend told the story that he had, his son had come back from school and he asked his son, what y'all do in school today? And his son said, Well, we we opened with prayer, and then we said the Pledge of Allegiance. And he said, What's what's the Pledge of Allegiance? He'd only been in America about two years. He didn't know the pledge. And his son said, Well, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic, for which it stands, one nation, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. And, and the Reverend Dockerty said, That sounds like that could be like the pledge to Russia or or some communist government. He says, what makes America different is God. and, And you should never pledge allegiance to a nation, to a flag that has not first submitted itself to God. Well, that Sunday he preached a sermon. The sermon was called Under God. And sitting on the front row was President Dwight Eisenhower. And he talked about, like, this is ridiculous. What makes America unique in America? We know and love about America. Well, Dwight heard this, and Dwight's like, you're exactly right. So at the end of service, Dwight called a cabinet meeting together. He called congressional leaders, says, we're doing this right now. We're passing this legislation. They did. They drafted the legislation. He signed it into law that under God was added the Pledge of Allegiance. Dwight's also the guy that opened a prayer chapel in the U.S. Capitol building. because He said, we need a place that congressmen and senators, they can pray and hear from God before they go vote on issues. Great thought and idea. Uh, Also, that stained glass that's there in the middle, it's a picture of George Washington kneeling in prayer. And around him is Psalms 16.1. It says, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. Dwight's also the guy who put in God we trust on the currency. It had been on some coins under Abraham Lincoln. Salmon Chase was the guy that helped do that from the Civil War. But it wasn't on our currency until Dwight said, yeah, we need to put in God we trust on our currency. Dwight's also the guy in 56 that made in God we trust our national motto. There's even more that Dwight did, but here's the point. Why did Dwight do all that? Dwight said, I am afraid that America is becoming too secular. If he was afraid we were too secular back then, right, he'd be floored with where we are today. Well, why was that even a concern? Dwight said, if we become secular, we might embrace communistic ideas, and that destroys the nation and people and their freedom, right? Right? What we know, even from what David wrote in the Bible, David wrote in Psalms thirty-three, 12, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. The reason America has been the most free, stable, prosperous nation in the history of the world, not because we're perfect, because we weren't, not because we always had amazing leaders, because we haven't, but it's because more than anything else, we did have people that understood who God was and worked to put God first in the things we did. God's ways work every single time. And this is what we used to know and understand It's some of what we've forgotten today, and and, and I've just scratched the tip of the iceberg in this hour we've been talking together. I will let you know, first of all, we do have a book called The American Story, where we actually tell much of the story, much greater detail, a lot more people involved, more than a thousand footnotes to original sources. So you actually can go look this up for yourself. We also have a website, wobblers.com, where there's so much more to the story. But here's the reality. The Bible said, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Most people don't know the truth. And you can't be set free by truth you don't know. And the truth is, what made this nation so special was the influence of the Bible, the influence of Christianity, and the influence of the church. The reason our nation is in so much trouble today is because of the lack of the influence of the Bible, Christianity, and the church. But why that's also hopeful is because we have never seen America at a place where she is more desperately looking for answers and solutions. And who are the people best equipped with answers and solutions? Right? The people of God and the church. It is for such a time as this, as God has us in this place, that we can once again restore biblical truth and principles for people's families, their marriages, their businesses, but it's also true for a nation. We as Christians have to be more dedicated to knowing God's word and standing up for biblical truth than ever before. Thank you guys so much for letting me share. Pastor, back to you.
0: you appreciate that? I I want to uh, encourage you, the generations behind us need to know that. Our kids need to grow up understanding that God had a plan for America. And I still believe God has a plan for us. But we've got to do our part. We've got to stand up. Amen? I love the fact that uh, Tim was referring to a family that read God's Word together. They read through the Word every year. Our congress had Bibles produced as the first readers for our public schools. That's where our kids originally learned how to read. I love this country. And I'm thankful for it. And we need to fight spiritually for it. Amen? So I want you to stand with me and i want you to just agree with me most of us that are my age or older never thought we would see the roe versus wade overturned but it happened but church there's now it's up to the states And Alaska is in the top four when it comes to abortion laws. You can abort a baby up until it's born in our state. God help us. We've got work to do. And it starts with each one of us recognizing you are unique. God created you with a plan and a purpose. And you need to say, yes, Lord, here I am. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Every one of us can make a difference. I want you to join me. And we're going to have a great time at the picnic in just a few minutes. But before we go, let's pray for our nation and for our, our government, for our leaders. And let's pray for a great awakening in our country. Father, I just thank You for Brother Tim today and wall builders and that ministry and what they're doing in our nation. We bless them today, Lord, and we pray for, Lord, just every need that they have to be met. That You would open doors and opportunities throughout our country for them to continue to teach the truth of our great heritage. Lord there's no doubt when anyone honestly studies the history of our nation that they'll come up with anything else other than God had a plan for these people for this nation Lord we certainly haven't been perfect and today we're as a nation we're we're rejecting God and turning away But Lord We know that You have used this nation throughout history to bless the world because we've taken the Gospel to the world. And Lord, we still want to be that nation. And Lord, we declare today that Jesus Christ is Lord over the United States of America. And Lord, we declare the United States is still a Christian nation. And Lord, we pray today that you would do whatever it takes to bring a revival to our nation, to every state, to every person. Lord, that you would just sweep by your Spirit across this great land. Lord, convict us of our sin and draw us to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would restore our nation in godliness and righteousness. Lord, that in these last days, Lord, that our nation would continue to be used to share the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. Lord, we thank You that we have known so great blessing. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to know the mercy and the grace in the blessing of God, and that we would truly turn back to you, Lord, as a nation. We pray for our president, we pray for the vice president, his cabinet, the Congress, the Senate, all those, Lord, that are in places of authority in our government. And Lord, we pray for our state governments as well. We pray for our governor. Lord, all of those that that make up our great state and leadership. And Lord, we pray if they don't know Jesus, that they would have a road of Damascus encounter with you. And we pray that our government would make righteous decisions, godly decisions, decisions that would once again bring the blessing of God upon our country. And Lord, I pray that the church of Jesus Christ would rise up in these days. Lord, that we would be the light and be the salt because Jesus is within us. Lord, that we wouldn't back down. Lord, we would be bold in our faith because Jesus is the only hope for this nation. And Lord, we bless our nation in the name of Jesus. We bless the United States of America. And Lord, I bless everyone that's here today and I pray that we would train up our children in the way they should go. That we would be families that read the Bible together. That we would read through your word every year. Lord, that we would, Lord, just be what you've called us to be. And Lord, we ask it all. In Jesus' glorious name, amen.
1: Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you next time. And don't forget, you can support us by giving through the Church Center app or by going online at summitwc.com give.